Good morning. Uh, before we start, of course, I'll ask you to go ahead and switch off your cell phones, please. Thank you. To read as a writer, one embodies the written piece and in doing so makes a home within the imagined space of another. Reading is a creative construction, one that necessitates both compassion and the willingness to tread through another human's, at time, bewildering mind. Today, Lon Otto is here to help us try to sort through some of the very different, even contradictory, tips and things that are involved in reading as a writer. Lon Otto has published two collections of stories, A Nest of Hooks and Cover Me. His writing can also be found in Flash Fiction, American Fiction, Best Words, and Not Normal Illinois, among other journals and publications. He's currently a professor of English at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Please join me in welcoming Lon Otto. Thanks, Carol, and thank you all for coming to this 11's cumbersomely titled Touchstones, Templates, and the Train Tracks, Your Mules on Reading as a Writer. Uh, the week's well underway, and I know your writing projects are calling to you. Tell them to be patient. You're needed here for now. I'm going to talk for about a half an hour. Um, and then we'll get to the best part of the Lovins, which will be a conversation during which I hope you'll raise questions and offer suggestions and share your own reading experiences that have affected your work as a writer in some way. No one writes who hasn't read. Even before there was writing and reading, back when there was only talking and listening and remembering poets and storytellers learned their craft by paying attention to other storytellers. A boy or girl walked away from the fire at the mouth of the cave muttering, holy shit, holy shit, lay awake in the adrenaline rush of the story, kept muttering, holy shit, until someone in the cave roared, shut up, we're trying to sleep here. And after so many nights, sat up in the darkness thinking, I'd like to do that. I could do that. I'm going to do that. Though not saying it out loud, it was too scary. And the next night slipped into the circle around the fire with a peculiar quietness, a peculiar focus and ruthless attention. Listening now in a whole new way. Listening not just to what happened, but how the storyteller was telling it. Okay, you can describe the bear's stink, the boy or girl notes silently. Okay, you can recall an earlier hunt to build suspense. Okay, you can lower your voice. You can slow down. You can make animal sounds. Got it. You can use the word fuck, apparently, but only in dialogue and as, as an expletive. Got it. We know reading is important, even essential to being a writer. We've been told that often enough, and it just makes sense. Musicians, 
listen to other musicians. Painters look at paintings. How we listen and look and read and why and to what and with what consequences, however, turns out to be less obvious. Title of this 11s is Touchstones, Templates, and the Train Tracks Your Mules On lays out three large categories of answers to those questions. There are more than three categories I've been inconvenienced to discover, but to name them all would make for a title even more ungainly than the one I settled on. And besides, they don't all easily alliterate. They matter, though, and I'll be addressing some of them. And during our conversation later in the hour, I'm hoping that you'll further complicate and enrich our understanding of what it means to read as a writer by sharing your own experiences. Trigger. I'm going to begin with an aspect that's not really included in my long, three-hearted title, though several keywords for it actually do alliterate. I'll call it trigger, or temptation, or tease, the inspiration to write in the first place. No one writes who hasn't read, partly because it wouldn't occur to us to do so otherwise. We're an imitative species, which is why we try to keep children from observing behavior. We don't want them to practice themselves. Acts of violence, or sexuality, or crippling fatuousness. No, you may not watch The Bachelorette. <laughs> we and our fellow primates are not the only imitative species, by the way. I recall a, a nature film about wolves. Apparently, the only, only the alpha pair gets in the pack gets to mate. But when they're going at it, individuals farther down in the alphabet get inspired and start messing around and have to be snarled and snapped at until they're no longer in the mood. Some of you can perhaps recall the reading experience that made you want to be a writer, that triggered what I suspect is an instinct carried in our genes as much as it is a socially determined behavior. Not just pleasure in reading or hearing something read, but the urge to make something like that yourself. And I'll be very interested in hearing about that later in the hour, the reading that you recall as a possible trigger for your own um, drive to write. I myself can still taste the deliciousness of listening to my first grade teacher read Dr. Seuss's The Lorax, I think it was. To, all, to us in all two brief installments, but I don't think any urge to write or draw resulted from it. I liked reading poetry for a long time without wanting to write it. And then I read Dylan Thomas and the carved limestone of that mysterious percussive language triggered something in me and for years I wrote crabbed, highly wrought, oblique poems struggling in vain, always in vain, to transform the mundane objects of my existence into the only kind of music I seemed capable of. I read and read in high school, 
But it wasn't until I hit John Updike's collection of stories, Pigeon Feathers, that the hormone or enzyme or gene or synapse of narrative urge was triggered, and I knew I wanted to write stories. I know what it was, or at least I think I do, that highly wrought language put at the service of lives nearly as unremarkable as my own. Hemingway's Michigan stories played a similar role for me. And then much less likely, Grace Paley's wildly funny, understated New York urban stories told in an idiom and by people profoundly different from my own life, yet somehow resonating. Reading inspires us to write, and it keeps on inspiring. Dora Welty calls writing a deeper commitment to reading. And this is what I think she means. There's a kind of border that we cross invisibly, maybe not even noticing it, from receiving the gift of words wrought by others to writing words of our own. We know there are enough words, there are enough books already written, way, way more than enough for us and for everybody else forever. You walk into a library or a bookstore and you know this with a certainty and obviousness that should absolutely crush the impulse to add even one more page or paragraph or line to that superabundance. It should logically paralyze us as writers, except that it doesn't, at least not for long. Writing is a deeper commitment to reading. We write because we love reading. There's more than a little irony in this, of course. Since the act of writing is one of the least interesting and least inspiring of all human activities to observe. We don't observe writers writing, whether at a keyboard or with pencil and paper, and think, that looks like fun. <laughs> I'd love to do that. When my daughter was a, a few years old, she'd come into my study when I was writing and crawl up onto my lap between me and my typewriter. And I'd sit there staring at the rolled paper, which is most of what writing is for me, though now I stare at a vir virtual paper on a screen. And after a moment or so, she'd impatiently demand, type! <laughs> Even fluent, powerfully inspired writing is just faster typing to an onlooker. It's different with painters. What they're doing usually does look like fun, and I never see a painter at work without some envy. What's almost always being referred to when we talk about reading as a writer involves learning the techniques of writing, templates of what's possible within a form. When we read as readers, as, as normal people for whom stories and poems and essays and plays are normally written, there's no particular reason to pay attention 
to the devices. Rhyme patterns and rhythm and meter and stanza structure and line breaks and illusion and image and metaphor and symbol, point of view, narrative and thematic structure, character development, persona. They just work on us, giving us rich and rewarding experience. We probably get a richer pleasure from reading if we know something about the devices. That's one of the reasons for becoming English majors. But poems and plays and stories and novels and memoirs and essays aren't written for English majors, at least not only for them. There are books, a lot of them, telling us how to write poems and stories and plays and screenplays and memoirs and every other genre of writing. Some of them are pretty good, but none of them is the real way that we fundamentally learn to write any more than a class is, even wonderful classes, such as those here at the University of Iowa. And I'll say this with more confidence than I can usually summon regarding any important issue. Any how-to book that leaves the impression that you can learn to write well without lots of reading of the thing itself that you're trying to write is a fraud. The situation with plays and screenplays is a little different. There you need to watch and listen as well as read. A thing itself in drama and film isn't just words on a page any more than music is notes on a staff or just that. So that's a more complicated situation. And If any of you have experience in that realm, I invite you to share with us. Share it with us later in the hour. In most cases, though, we learn to write by reading, internalizing forms, absorbing technique, discovering what can be done within the genre. But not everyone who reads becomes a writer, not even some of those whose desire to write has been triggered by the reading. In ordinary reading, most of what I'd call technique remains below the surface, as unnoticed by the reader as the circuitry of a computer. The normal reader has no reason to open up the case and start poking around. The normal reader cares about performance and would probably just as soon not worry about how it works, why it works, as long as it does work. Normal reading makes some obvious techniques visible. The rhyme and rhythm of traditional poetry, for instance, the opacity of a lot of modern poetry, the prominence of metaphor, the fact that lines don't usually go all the way to the right margin. And those are the features that will most likely appear as a reader starts to write. The narrower the reading has been, the more predictable it is which technical features will first be employed. If we're serious about it, though, and I mean serious as Nietzsche uses the term, who describes the artist as one who works with the seriousness of a child at play, we start reading as a writer, paying an entirely different kind of attention to the text. We look for the how rather than just experiencing 
the what. We look for the choices the writer has made to begin here, to end there, to skip over this event entirely, to present that scene in minute detail, to employ this point of view, this level of diction, this time frame, and then ask ourselves what the effect of each choice is. That's reading as a writer. That's the main thing most of us mean when we talk about reading as a writer. Next to actually practicing writing, it's probably the most important thing we do in becoming writers. I'd say that in some cases it's even more important than getting responses to our writing. Though that's a little like saying the heart is more important than the liver. We learn what techniques are available to us by seeing them put into play by other writers. That's how it works. Musicians learn this way, painters learn this way, and like musicians and painters, writers usually benefit from guidance in recognizing the techniques and in understanding how they work. This is 50 to 70% of the job of the teacher of creative writing, I think. And without it, the rest of the job, mostly giving responses to work in, to work in progress, would be sterile and arbitrary. I never teach a creative writing course at the undergraduate or graduate level without assigning a lot of reading and demanding that students pay deliberate attention to the moves that the writers made, the particular choices they made in response to particular situations and subject matter, noting the how and questioning the why. It's not always a demand that's met with gratitude. Students, like their teachers, are sometimes just lazy. And reading of the sort I've described involves a lot of work. But there are other issues, issues of originality, integrity, the uniqueness of our writer's voice that reading other writers sometimes raises. These are not trivial concerns, though they're sometimes expressed naively. I try not to read too much since I want to be an original, a student sometimes says to me. The obvious answer to that is you've already read something, right? It's too late to be a wild child, <laughs> a feral writer. And if you have one model, there's a pretty strong likelihood that that's the way you're going to write. It may dictate what you write as well as how. If you have a hundred models in your head, or a thousand, it becomes increasingly unlikely that any one of them is going to dominate you, dictate your subject matter, or take charge of your voice. At least not for long. It's true that when a writer, especially a writer still relatively new to the craft, reads a lot of some author, it's likely that he or she will start to sound a lot like that author. It's most striking when there's a sharp disconnect between the writer's natural idiom and that of the work he or she is reading. I recall the, 
this last year, a depiction of an extreme Frisbee game in Shakespearean language and cadences, done entirely without irony. But it works more subtly, too. The past spring, I directed a, a talented, serious young fiction writer's individual study project. As usual in an advanced course, I asked her to pick some books to read and reflect on while she wrote her own stories. She chose short fiction collections by Bonnie Jo Campbell, who was a visiting writer at the university that semester, Laurie Moore, whom she'd previously read in an anthology and liked a lot, and Jonas Agee, a writer I know well and thought would resonate with her. In her cover essay, Reflecting, on her, on her final portfolio, she wrote, I've noticed as I've gone through these stories the way my voice absorbs whatever author I'm reading. When I was reading Bonnie Jo Campbell, things got a little dramatic with love triangles and Gabby goes grocery shopping. When I was reading Jonas Agee, the lyrical side of my voice started to come into the spotlight in waves. And, and then when I was reading Laurie Moore, I started mixing the funny and odd with the sad and depressing. She was right about that. And the early drafts of those stories, particularly, were clearly marked by her reading. But those characteristics were, were impulses entirely natural to her. And once she'd revised the stories for her final portfolio, all of them were unmistakably her own. Her voice hadn't been co-opted. It had been opened up, freeing registers that were already latent to depict experiences and emotions and personalities that were completely authentic, completely hers. Yesterday's terrific Elevenses by Carl Klaus is very relevant to the issue of integrity of one's voice and the idea that reading might compromise it. He made very clear the degree to which a writer's voice, including the voice in that seemingly most immediate and natural genre, the personal essay, is very much a constructed thing, subject to revision and development by the writer. Reading widely, I believe, makes it more rather than less likely that we arrive at a voice or voices true to ourselves and the needs of our writing. Reading also offer, offers us touchstones, ways of judging the authenticity of what we're doing as writers. The great Victorian poet and essayist Matthew Arnold had a deep interest in education. And in looking, and in looking for a way to teach people to judge what was great literature and what was not, he hit upon the idea of literary touchstones. A literal touchstone, an actual physical touchstone, is a black stone, usually jasper or basalt, used to determine the purity of precious metals, especially gold. In the Middle Ages and Renaissance, a lot of counterfeit coinage was going on. And you'd use one of these little stones to keep yourself from being cheated. You'd rub, touch the questionable metal on the stone making a streak. And then next to it, you'd rub a sample of metal you knew to be genuine. Comparing the two streaks, you could see whether that gold coin you'd been paid for your cow was the real thing, or whether it was time to reach for your dagger. 
What we need to do, Arnold said, is assemble an array of passages that everyone agrees are great literature. Then read them sad, side by side with the writing in question, which should reveal whether the questionable writing was good or not. Pretty slick idea. The problem is, the problem is picking the passages of unquestionable greatness. It was here that Arnold revealed some seriously limiting prejudices. He was a serious guy, and his chosen passages tended to have a heavy degree of high moral purpose, which was a quality he valued very much and assumed was necessary for literary greatness. His choice for a Chaucer passage, for instance, was not the brilliant Miller's tale, the greatest dirty story ever told, but the knight's tale, a plodding, over-earnest thing that even my medievalist colleagues don't seem to care much for. In our diverse society, it's even less possible than in Arnold's day to get any general agreement on what represents great literature. Imagining the Modern Language Association or the Associated Writing Programs or any English department in the country having a committee select those passages is the scenario for a horror movie. Finding personal touchstones for your own writing is entirely manageable and extremely useful, however. And I would argue that in some ways it happens whether we're doing it consciously or not. Finding books and passages that seem to you to have qualities you want in your own writing. The right tone, vividness of scene, freshness and energy and naturalness of dialogue, whatever is an issue for you. A few years ago, I found myself deeply disenchanted with a particular character's chapters in the novel I was writing. I couldn't put my finger on the problem until I read Tom Drury's novel, The End of Vandalism. Moving from reading that book back to the offending chapters almost immediately clarified the problem, a heavy self-seriousness that suddenly stood out in sharp contrast next to Drury's quick, light-handed prose. I go back to Drury, to Drury sometimes as a touchstone to rub my prose across, and to other writers who have seemed to me to represent essential alloys, Welty, O'Connor, Paley, Baldwin, Updike, dozens of others, sometimes something run across um, recently that seemed vivid and alive, something, sometimes something I first read 50 years ago. In Death in the Afternoon, a book about bullfighting that contains almost everything Ernest Hemingway ever wrote about writing, he refers to developing a shit detector. And I think this is how we do it, internalizing a stock of authentic writing, authentic for ourselves, against which our own writing can be compared. There's perhaps a reverse process that could occur and I overheard some conversations as I came here that reminded me of these. Bad writing that maybe lowers our standard, it's so easy to match. Never read bad stuff if you're an artist, James Lee Burke says. It will impair your own game. I don't know if you ever played competitive tennis, but you learn not to watch bad tennis. It messes up your game. Art's the same way. I'm not sure I buy this, 
but I do hope that the Wimbledon I've been watching every morning will pay off when I get back home. At a dinner party this spring, a poet I know asserted with some bitterness that the poet Gregory Orr didn't read contemporary poetry. He refused to. I later discovered that she was referring to an interview with Orr in the Writer's Chronicle. Uh, I found the interview, and the situation turns out to be considerably more nuanced than that remark suggests. In the interview, Orr, in fact, insists on how essential it is to read widely, including contemporary writing, and a lot of it as one is creating his or her distinctive voice. He goes on to say, however, that there came to be a point, for him anyway, where he's found reading contemporary writing while he's writing, those three words are in all caps, while he's writing gets in his way. When I was young, he says, partly because I didn't have workshops, I just read as much poetry as I possibly could. And I still believe that's a really good way to go, just reading all over the place. When you're a young poet, reading is a search for your lost family. You're looking for your secret poetry fathers and your secret poetry mothers and cousins and uncles and aunts, people who are like you, not your biological family, but your imaginative family, the family you want to be reborn into, the family from whom you were somehow abducted at birth and now you're going to find them again. You're not just looking for a father, you're looking for a whole family. And every time you find a poet that you absolutely love, you found kin, people who are spiritual relatives. And that means you're not alone. It means that you read Whitman and feel that recognition and think, my God, this is my strange great uncle Walt. <laughs> it makes it easier for you to live knowing that Walt Whitman's poems are part of your life. I'd like to add here that this quest for a family, as you read, isn't limited to writers. I can love my strange great-uncle Walt without myself trying to become a poet, but the family connection, I think, is especially intense and important to writers. Or goes on in an interview with a related metaphor for the, um, for the reading experience, something he sees in music as well as writing, the search for ourselves. If we put together the 15 songs and poems that we love most in the world and look at them, it's like looking in a mirror and seeing yourself. It's not a mirror that shows your face. It's more one that's showing your soul. An interviewer asked, so who have you found in your mirror? You mentioned Whitman. Are there other influential figures who have shaped your development as a poet? And Orr answered, Keats. For Orr then, while he's writing, while he's writing, connecting with earlier members of his tribe is more helpful to him than reading contemporary writing. I think I understand this, but the underlying truth applies to all of us that we have to find what works for us. Wide, even indiscriminate reading is probably essential. At some point, anyway, laying in a storehouse of technical possibilities, at the same time arming us against oppressive influence by any one author or school of authors. But eventually we come to the point where some kinds of reading help us be most truly ourselves, 
and other kinds obscure that. I suspect that while he's writing, reading contemporary poets whose language and subject matter and aesthetic are closer to his own than are those of poets from the 19th century are probably a kind of interfering signal, impeding his writing. That's my guess. He absolutely had to read contemporary writing in, in order to know what was possible in his own age, what's available to him in terms of forms and language and subject matter and aesthetic. He continues to read his contemporaries, he says. But while he's writing, and again, that's, there, there are people for whom that phrase wouldn't make any sense because they're kind of always writing others. And it must be the case with, with Orr. Um, it's a more, a more contained, compressed activity. While he's writing, the reading that sustains him is from an earlier time. That's, that's Orr. We each have to find our own way. So reading triggers the impulse to write. It teaches us how to write, opening us up for us the tool sets of technique. While reading helps us to find who we are as writers, freeing us from the undue influence of, of two or three order, of, I'm sorry, of two or three authors. It gives us standards against which to test the authenticity of our writing. It helps us discover our own voice, our affinities, our family, ourselves. And sometimes it warns us off. It tells us, this seat is taken. And this is where I'm ending. The train tracks your mules on. In an essay addressing why the grotesque is so common in Southern writing, including her own, Franny O'Connor writes, there's another reason in the Southern situation that makes for a tendency toward the grotesque, and this is the prevalence of good Southern writers. I think the writer is initially set going by literature more than by life, a point that brings us back to the beginning of this talk. When there are many writers all employing the same idiom, all looking out on more or less the same social scene, the individual writer will have to be more than ever careful that he isn't just doing badly what has already been done to completion. The presence alone of Faulkner in our midst makes a great difference in what the writer can and cannot permit himself to do. Nobody wants his mule and wagon stalled on the same track the Dixie Limited is roaring down. Some of you are Southern writers yourselves, I'll bet, now needing to keep your mule and wagon off the same track as Frank O'Connor as, as well as William Faulkner and a mob of others. Almost all of us, though, at times hear a train whistle we need to pay attention to. Books about the place or event or sport or business or whatever else we've spent the last five years writing about. We have to read these books, I'm afraid, the scariest of all forms of reading as a writer. We just have to. Though some of us refuse, have a friend read them, ask them to tell us how close it is, hope to God it isn't great, but also not so bad that it stinks up the whole subject. And on that dire note, I'm going to end the monologue portion of this 11s. Um, I want to hear what you have to say about your experience of reading as a writer. Um, and I thank you very much for your patience.
So, what's happened with your writing that you recall? Does, any, does anybody recall uh, uh, the experience when you were reading something and, and decided, felt, knew, I have to do that myself? Ours is all diffuse. Anybody? Yeah, Sandy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it's, I think, maybe partly because it's a book we often are exposed to at a crucial moment in our lives. Uh, young adults often, uh, that's, that's often the, the first great novel that, at least for, uh, I think, in my generation, maybe one of the first great novels that... Um, was asked to read and discovered, uh, all right, here's, this is something real. This is Anybody else? Anybody else? Or, yeah, yeah. Um, so what you were talking about, um, that sort of moment that you knew something, that I had been, I, I was already practicing photography at the moment, and, mm -hmm. and I had to take this, um, this picture class in North Carolina, and I remember I wrote this story in uh, a Broadway musical about, and these two guys got in a fight in the class Absolutely. Absolutely. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Going through a book that's worked for you, uh, especially going through it a second time and saying, "All right, what are the what are the places that I was really grabbed, where I was shaken?" Um, and noting those, uh, I know a lot of writers um, keep what's I think they're called commonplace books, which is a kind of a non-intuitive term if I'm right about what it means, which is sort of quotations. Is that right? You're, you're kind of nodding your head, Carol. Uh, um, I don't know why a commonplace book. Is it? Yeah. Uh, but again, which is in some ways no more descriptive of, of what it is. It's just the collections of things that have that have moved you. Um, I, I taught a, a course in travel writing last last week, and I. Um, was one of the books that we looked at, first three pages of anyway, was uh, Bruce Chatwin's the, 
the song lines. And, and that, that contains big chunk of it. I mean, it, my memory of it is maybe a fifth of the book is just quotations from people who are writing about, um, about his subject. Um, and, and it's not exactly the same thing as what you're talking about. It's not exactly touchstones. That's um, not exactly something that, that reminds you of, um, of, what's, of what works for you, but it's, it is related anyway. I think probably, I mean, my, my typographical instinct tells me that probably it would not survive in a, in a final draft, but as a way of marking what it is that you're doing, um, I, think it's, I think it's fabulous. And maybe, among other things, saying, all right, the, the stuff that's in Courier New um, tends to be kind of flat. Um, and what kind of stuff is that? And then, and then going to deliberately going to some books that you've read before or ask to get recommendations and say, um, what are some examples that would, that would help me shake, up, shake myself out of this and then get into a different mode? So I, I think that probably would be, would be a real threat. Fa Faulkner wanted, to, wanted his publishers and was really pretty insistent on it when he published um, The Sound and the Fury, um, that he wanted it in four different inks to indicate different time frames and stuff like that. They said, no, 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 we're doing it, we're doing this in black. Um, and he was very disappointed, and so he uses a lot of italics. Inconsistently, though. Sometimes italics mean one thing, sometimes it means something else, but he had fewer, he had fewer options. Other things about negative or positive experiences as you're reading with um, books that are on the, the, the tracks that you're, you're operating on um, that have been intimidating or that have been helpful, perhaps. Yeah. You mean retype? Retype. Right, not, not revise. Not revise. And literally retype what's happening. And it's amazing the change that you see in one client. Because you keep reading this one thing, and you, you imagine yourself as a writer writing this work, and you get something completely different. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's that kinesthetic experience of typing those great words. 
And uh, you know, you can come up with those words, but still your fingers are typing them. I think that's fabulous. Um, there's a, an Iowa, a wonderful Iowa writer, Barbara Moss, who also teaches in the, the program sometimes. And um, she claims, she's a memoirist, and she has said, um, and I have no reason to doubt her, that she, there was so, and I can't remember what the book is. Maybe somebody here knows um, what, what the book was. But anyway, that she basically taught herself to write by, by typing somebody's entire book and then deleting it all and then typing it again. Now, she's a fast typist. All right? For me, this would, this would be you know, months and months of, of, of work and I just couldn't do it. But she's a very fast typist. And, uh, and it worked for her exactly that exactly that thing, getting that, getting that into, which is, which is hardly the, the advantage of the commonplace book or the day book where you, the, the book of passages that you love that, that are meaningful to you, not just meaningful for how they're written. Is it you're, you're copying them out. You're doing exactly that, either in your handwriting or, um, I think your users tend to be handwritten things. Um, well, that's, uh, I'm really glad you mentioned that. That really is a way of, of connecting those two activities in, in a kind of peculiar, in a kind of peculiar way. Yeah. Other things, other things that you you're wondering about or puzzled by or would like to to add to the to the conversation. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for coming. Good good writing and reading this week. <laughs>